With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Danielle Leal. Hey everyone, Danielle Leal here and thanks for getting your agriculture news with me today. Federal water deliveries expected to resume for farmers after winter storms. California farmers are expected to see increased federal water allocations this year as winter storms bolster the Sierra Nevada snowpack and water levels rise in reservoirs. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation has announced an initial allocation of 35% of contracted water supplies for agricultural customers south of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. The February 22nd announcement was welcomed news after officials provided zero allocations for agriculture from the Federal Central Valley Project in both 2021 and 2022. That was today's California Farm Bureau Food and Farm News Report, and now let's get into today's show headlines. When it comes to food safety, there have been some changes to post-harvest water rules for California nut producers. Don Stucco with Produce Safety Alliance shares a compliance update when it comes to food safety for nut producers as they prepare for food safety audits. For a for a grower that has been through a GAPS audit or another another food safety audit, the elements of the produce safety rule will not come as a surprise. They're the same concepts. Keep poop off produce, keep things clean, keep things sanitary. One difference between if if they if a farm goes through an audit, they will find that where audits are checklist based, the produce safety rule is systems based, where the the inspector for the produce safety rule is going to be looking at the overall big picture as opposed to each individual thing on the checklist that an auditor usually looks through. So I do feel that most of our farms in California are, especially those who have been through audits, have a very good basis for preparation. One area that I want to highlight, the agricultural water requirements and produce safety rule were proposed, revised, finalized, then they were revised again. And and during that time period, um, compliance has been postponed while the rules were modified. One set of those rules having to do with post-harvest water goes into effect on, on the 26th of January for the for the farms that are large, and a large farm sells more than $500,000 per year in produce. So, so that's new for both the inspectors and for the farms, um, and for, for the growers. It's not going to be, but I, I, think, I, I think most of the considerations make sure you're using water that starts safe. In, in terms of no E. coli, no fecal contamination in the water, generally drinking quality water for starting for post-harvest is what you want to start with, and then maintaining the quality of the water. Again, that was John Stuckel with the Produce Safety Alliance. And now here's Brian German with more Ag News. Rootstock trials in the Central Valley are showing some promise for drought resiliency. Viticulture Farm Advisor Carl Lund said one particular rootstock is performing very well under water stress in a vineyard in Madeira. The one that does the best for water stress is GRN2. Uh, GRN2 just has this ability to find water anywhere it can. Um, It is actually very similar to Freedom. Uh, So one of my trials is just outside the city of Madeira. Um, And that vineyard uses uh, stress starting at Verizon to improve the quality of their grapes. Um, Or at least that's what the winemaker thinks happens. There's a whole different story there. Um, But when it comes to 
uh, water stress, GRN2, even under stressful situations, just has this ability to keep that canopy supplied with water. Now, there's, of course, a limit. When you put it under stressful situations, it does get more stressed. So it's not like, you know, it just magically keeps your vines unstressed. But when you compare it to, you know, Freedom, 1103 Paulson and the other GR and rootstocks, um, it does keep the vine least stressed or at least tied with freedom for least stress. So it has an amazing job about keeping, you know, your canopy not under water stress. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal, tossing it right on over to Sabrina Halverson with today's National Spotlight. In today's National Spotlight, the House Agriculture Committee held its first hearing of the new congressional year titled Uncertainty, Inflation, Regulations, Challenges for American Agriculture. Opening statements from the committee leaders were partisan and politically charged. Committee Chair Glenn G.T. Thompson, a Republican from Pennsylvania, listed several recent problems agriculture has faced, such as the rising costs of fuel and inputs and problems caused by the war in Ukraine. Over the last several years, I've traveled to more than 40 states and have heard firsthand from our farmers on issues related to labor, fuel, fertilizer, inflation, and interest rates. The average cost of diesel fuel per gallon increased 95% from 2020 to 2022. The 2022 average Henry Hub Real Natural Gas spot gas price increased 53% from 2021. Fertilizer inputs such as nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium increased 125% in 2021 and an additional 30% in the first five months of 2022 alone. Urea, the most applied nitrogen fertilizer, increased 205% in price between 2020 and 2022. Last week marked one year since Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, which perpetuates a disrupted global food supply system, uh, resulting in continued increased energy prices, fertilizer cost spikes and shortages, and worsening food scarcity in developing countries. At the same time, American consumers are watching in dismay as their grocery and energy bills skyrocket. The Biden administration continues to ignore this crisis, these crises, uh, neglecting America's producers and consumers. In fact, this administration continues to promote nonsensical regulations and policies that create needless uncertainty for farmers, ranchers, and working families, further limiting our ability to meet the growing food demands of our nation and the world. The challenges facing production agriculture are many. However, I believe that one of the few silver linings, maybe the only silver lining, is Americans' heightened awareness of the importance of a reliable, domestic food supply, and the producers who provide it. 
Committee Ranking Member David Scott, a Democrat from Georgia, also talked about the current problems during his opening statements. He mentioned the impacts of the pandemic on supply chains and manufacturing around the globe. We are still feeling the impacts of the pandemic on our supply chains. The COVID-19 pandemic disrupted manufacturing across the globe and exacerbated labor shortages right here at home. And uh, President Biden's administration has taken important actions to address these issues. For example, President Biden signed the Ocean Shipping Reform Act last year, and that helped avert a nationwide rail crisis. And the president worked with us here in Congress to pass two historic pieces of legislation, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which included more than $2.9 billion for USDA's rural broadband programs for water storage and a new byproduct pilot program. And that was followed by passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which made historic investments in rural America to help our farmers and rural communities mitigate climate change and continue to lead the way on renewable energies. This was the first House Agriculture Committee hearing since last September. That's today's National Spotlight. I'm Sabrina Halverson, Fragnet West. Thanks, Sabrina. And now for today's Livestock Report, here's Randall Wiseman. Well, in today's Livestock News, a team of 15 farm industry leaders recently traveled to Mexico representing the U.S. Meat Export Federation in their first post-COVID trade mission. John Harris has more about that trip. A U.S. Meat Export Federation trade team recently returned from Monterey, Mexico, where they participated in the Expo Carnes Food Show, visited a processing facility, and saw the broad range of food retail offered in Monterey, ranging from wet markets to high-end boutique groceries, according to USMEF Mexico Regional Director Gerardo Rodriguez. The way that people usually buy the meat in the traditional carnicerias in the wet markets. But also we went to the modern supermarket chains, the way the meat is being merchandised there, how the digital era is getting into this channel about working to the different platforms. Then we went to the high-end stores, and also we were able to visit some of the meat boutiques. The group visited a processor that uses exclusively U.S. pork. Keith Miller, who was on the tour representing the Kansas Soybean Commission, notes the processor worked with USMEF to switch from pork belly to more affordable pork jowl for its chicharron products. The pork jowls is, uh, makes a good product for them that is a lot cheaper because that's not a product that we typically don't use a lot of in the United States. And they really like it down here because it cooks up real nice and tender and they can season it and they really enjoy it. So, And the price is cheaper, so it fits them in all categories. Mexico is a key customer, particularly for U.S. pork, and the trade trip is an important tool to maintain a strong trade relationship, according to Indiana farmer Jim Douglas, who represents soybean growers on the USMEF Board of Directors. And I think it just shows uh, the awareness of how sincere we are to uh, work in these markets 
and uh, we really appreciate their business. Tremendous uh, customer Mexico is, and so we really appreciate everything they've done for us. For more, visit usmbf.org. For the U.S. Meat Export Federation, I'm John Harris. Thanks, John. And Senate lawmakers this week reintroduced the Dairy Pride Act of 2023. The bill is titled the Defending Against Imitations and Replacements of Yogurt, Milk, and Cheese to Promote Regular Intake of Dairy Everyday Act of 2023. The legislation will require non-dairy products made from nuts, seeds, plants, and algae to no longer be mislabeled with dairy terms such as milk, yogurt, or cheese. The reintroduction follows last week's Food and Drug Administration proposal allowing nut, oat, soil, and other non-dairy products to use the name milk. Senate Democrat Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin said the Biden administration's guidance that allows non-dairy products to use the dairy names is just wrong. Current FDA regulations define dairy products as being from dairy animals, but last week the FDA released draft guidance allowing plant-based products to continue to use dairy terms. I'm Randall Wiseman for Agnet West. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. What GMO crops are grown and sold in the U.S.? Well, there's corn, like me, soybeans, canola, sugar beets, and cotton. Typically, we're ingredients in certain foods. GMO alfalfa, corn, soybeans, canola, and cotton are used as animal food. And while you won't find many GMOs in the produce section, there are versions of GMO apple, summer squash, potato, and papaya in a few markets. Feed your mind with more GMO knowledge on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. An important deadline is coming up for cotton growers. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. The U.S. Cotton Trust Protocol reminds growers to enroll and complete data entry for their 2022 crop as the March 31, 2023 deadline quickly approaches. Launched in 2020, the Trust Protocol was designed to set a new standard in more sustainably grown cotton. Producers enrolled in the Trust Protocol are eligible to participate in the Climate Smart Cotton Program, which will provide technical and financial assistance to 1,650 U.S. cotton farmers with acres available for climate smart practice changes. Growers also receive personalized data that can be used to help improve their sustainability efforts and yield, as well as gain closer communication with their end customers. With increased scrutiny on sustainability, the program provides access to more sustainably grown cotton for brands and retailers and science-based, data-led assurances that consumers can have confidence in, which they say is something that has been lacking in the industry to date. I'm Sabrina Halverson for Agnet West. This is the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McCohen. Under certain federal farm programs, especially those designed to provide environmental benefits, the USDA shares in part of the expense associated with satisfying program requirements. Is that cost share amount taxable to the recipient? With some federal farm programs, the USDA cost shares with a farmer the expense of complying with the program. Some or all of the cost share might not be taxable if the program is primarily for the purpose of conserving soil and water resources, protecting or restoring the environment, improving forests, or providing habitat for wildlife. Also, the improvement to the property that the farmer receives cost share for must not substantially increase the income from the property, and no part of the payment can be for an expense that is allowed to be deducted in the current tax year. The regulations provide a formula for determining the portion of cost share that's not taxable. 
In late 2022, the USDA said that septic improvement program payments meet the requirements of the tax code so that cost share amounts can qualify to be non-taxable to the recipient. The USDA's position conflicted with the stance the IRS took in 2020 that said the grant funds were taxable. But now the IRS has changed its mind and has announced that amounts paid under the septic improvement program can qualify to be non-taxable. That will be helpful for some rural landowners. This has been the Agricultural Law and Tax Report. I'm Roger McOwen. Ah, Mendelssohn's classic spring song, reminding us that spring planting time is rapidly approaching. And of course, in ag circles, you don't need music to tell you the spring is approaching. Just listen to all the analysts and traders and others speculating about how much of what crops farmers are going to plant this spring. There's always a lot of speculation out there, even leading up to this point, about what acreage is going to be. Oh, yes, there are those who theorize, speculate, predict, and guess. But Lance Honig, who runs the crops branch of USDA Statistics Service, says, yes, you may try to predict what farmers are going to do. This is the first opportunity to find out collectively what the farmers themselves are thinking. The this that Lance is talking about is the USDA's planting intentions... Oh, oh, yeah, that's Lance's way of getting me to call it by its official name, the Prospective Plantings Report. I call it the Planting Intentions <laughs> Report uh, because it's easier to say. But anyway. The Prospective Plantings Report is always a highly anticipated report. Of course, it's USDA's first survey-based look at what planting intentions are for the upcoming season, that first gauge of what farmers expect to plant to the various crops during the upcoming crop season. And to find out what they expect to plant. We'll be reaching out to more than 70,000 producers and we're really asking how many acres of the various crops do you intend to plant at this time? Subject changes because of weather or input prices or any number of a hundred other factors. Results to be published in USDA's planting intent. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Perspective plantings report in late March. Survey questionnaires were mailed out to selected producers back on February 17th. And so Lance says, Our goal is to get as many responses as we can. And so everybody gets an opportunity to either fill out that form and send it back in via the mail. You've got an opportunity to go out on the web and complete it there. But if you choose not to do that, we will start phoning uh, producers right at the end of February. We'll do that for a couple of weeks. And Lance says in some cases, if needed, we might even send an enumerator out to the operation to collect that information. USDA will shut down data collection March 17th with the little little early there, Lance, <laughs> with the prospective plantings report due out when? Noon Eastern time on March the 31st. Uh, March 31st. This is Gary Crawford, very funny, Lance, reporting <laughs> for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. We'll be back in just a moment with more of the day's national headlines and local reports when we return. But don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you simply need to catch the news at a different time, you can always subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search Agnet News Hour or Agnet West on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour. It's available on both Apple and Android devices. 
Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West, providing you with statewide agriculture news daily. I'm your host, Danielle Leal. Now let's listen in to more featured segments. With two months of 2023 now in the books, most grain futures have had a tough start to the year. Livestock futures have not fared a lot better. I'm Mark Oppole. This is the Bottom Line Report for Thursday, March 2nd, brought to you by AgriLiquid. We track 48 different commodities day-to-day on the Bottom Line Report, including grain, livestock futures, financials, energies, and more. Through the end of February, the best-performing commodity so far, orange juice, up 21% since New Year's. Of course, weather and disease issues have been a factor there. Lumber is up 9.5%, cocoa up 9%. The best-performing agricultural commodity would be live cattle and feeder cattle, both up 4 4.5% so far. And all grain futures now in the red after a tough February. Soybeans down over 1.5%, corn down 7% year-to-date, wheat down 105 AgriLiquid will be at the Commodity Classic next week in Orlando, booth number 2749 if you're heading to the trade show. And if not able to be in Orlando, check out the website, agriliquid.com. This is the Bottom Line Report. At the very bottom of our 48 commodities since the first of the year, natural gas down nearly 40%, of course, due to a lack of extended cold weather. I'm Mark Oppold, wishing you a profitable day. Good day, everybody. Albert J. Hernandez, the untamed chef for Agnet West. And welcome to the California Kitchen, where you can learn how to cook from an award-winning chef in under three minutes or less. I'm your host with the most. Let's get untamed. So with the sun out as much as it is, one thing we've been doing a lot in my household is a lot of late night grilling. And this is a really cool recipe. It's a very simple recipe. And for someone who doesn't particularly like broccoli, one thing I've done with my kids is utilizing broccolini, which is... A little bit more of a unique version of the tree, but more importantly, the flavor is just out of this world if it's done correctly. Now, we cheat a little bit when we do this on the grill, and the only reason we do that is if we leave it on the grill just raw, what's going to end up happening is the broccolini is it's going to be just very, it's going to be too smoky, and we're not going to be able to taste that, that beautiful flavor and that gorgeous green color. It kind of almost turns gray. So what I like to do is you can do this two ways. You can do this in a microwave and I like to just get a whole bunch of broccolini make sure you clean it and I always give it a good rinse before we do that and then we are going to put it in the microwave for about a minute to a minute and a half and I'm going to put that it's the very last thing I do if I'm doing just like a barbecue because it doesn't take that long at all and to impart that smoky flavor uh, just utilizing uh, some wood pellets over uh, hot uh, hot charcoal or hot coals you're going to get a really, really great flavor. So using that bunch of broccolini, I'm just going to season it with salt and pepper. And I like to use that, like that, uh, the nonstick Pam spray or, or just the regular 
uh, oil in a can. And it's very, very important because what happens is it's going to make sure the broccolini is not going to stick to our grill. So I like to just pour a little bit of that or spray a little bit of that on top of our grill. And always do this in the hottest possible part. Don't do this on the uh, colder part of the grill because we just want to do like almost a quick sear of this broccolini and take it right off. We finish it just with a little bit of lemon pepper to taste. And this will accompany any great steak, any great piece of fish, uh, chicken, anything you put with this. And I promise you, if there's somebody who says, I hate broccoli, if you give them this recipe, they are absolutely going to love it. Remember, uh, to go to my website, www.ajhtheuntamedchef.com uh, to check out my videos. And if you want to ask me some questions, you can email me directly from there as well. Uh, also, vote for my burger as the best burger in the country by the James Beard Foundation's Blended Burger Project uh, 2019. Whether we win, lose, or tie, we're just going to have some fun doing it. And as always, this is Albert J. Hernandez, and you all know me as the Untamed Chef from Agnet West. Not only is it still winter from a meteorological standpoint, but in several parts of the nation, it still feels like winter. Too soon, perhaps, to consider how to deal with mosquitoes in the summer? As Penn State University Extension's Jamie Kopko points out, now is a good time to learn more about biology of mosquitoes so you can be prepared to deal with them. A lot of people don't realize that there are important differences in what kind of still standing water different kinds of mosquitoes like. You heard Kopko say different types of mosquitoes. He points out regarding mosquito species in his state of Pennsylvania alone. There are roughly 50 different species of mosquitoes somewhere in that ballpark. Also mentioned, different mosquito species prefer different types of standing water as their nesting area to lay eggs. Some of them are all about a little pool of water that builds up in a clogged drain spout or a discarded tire or trash on the side of the road or something like that. They love these teeny tiny little water bodies. And then you have other types of mosquitoes that are like, give me a swamp. I want a swamp or a pond or something big. Another differentiation between mosquito species based on their biology how far they could fly. Some species, especially the ones that kind of go for those real small breeding areas, they tend to stay close to home. So they might never travel more than one or 200 yards their entire life. So if you can find where they're breeding and clean that up, you might make a big difference on how many mosquitoes you've got. Where other species of mosquitoes will fly for miles, and especially if like a storm system rolls through, the wind might blow them some. So you can be like, we're getting hit by all these mosquitoes all summer long, and we can't find any breeding sites. Well, yeah, their breeding site might actually be a marshy area two miles upwind, and they're all just blowing in. And Copco says knowing when mosquitoes are active during a day part is important. If the mosquitoes that are causing you grief are mostly active in the evening, if you can just coordinate your outdoor time to be like, we're done with whatever we're doing outside before the mosquitoes come out, that's a really easy way to just avoid them. Versus if they're out during the day, then your evening campfire might be totally fine and not get mosquito pressure. Then there are potential mosquito treatment methods based on biology some homeowners can do on their own. There are different traps on the market that you can buy that basically are just like a bucket of water and you throw some grass clippings or leaf litter in it and it creates this really appealing egg-laying site for them and it's got a one-way door in it. So the female mosquitoes can get in hoping that they're going to lay eggs and then they can never get back out. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. How are GMO plants made? First, scientists look for a desired trait in a plant, animal, or even bacteria. It could be a trait like resistance to drought, insects, or viruses. Then they copy the gene that contains that trait and insert it into the DNA of the plant they want to improve. Scientists then grow that plant to see if it adopts the desired trait. Feed your mind with more GMO facts on FDA's website. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. At a recent Integrated Pest Management and Naval Orangeworm Summit hosted by the Almond Board of California, we had the opportunity to speak with Principal Analyst for Regulatory and Environmental Affairs for the Almond Board, Jesse Roseman, where he highlighted an initiative called the Ag Neighbors Program to deploy mating disruption on a wider scale, which started out as a pilot but showed some success. We started this in West Modesto in cooperation with Blue Diamond Growers and Cooperative Extension because there are a lot of small growers that are in this area. And mating disruption is a technology, it's a practice that works better at scale. So while we've seen a lot of large growers using it because we know it's effective, adoption hasn't been as widespread among small growers. So this program is a way for small growers that are in close proximity to each other to find each other with this shared interest of using mating disruption to manage naval orangeworm. And now uh, with kind of the success shown with that pilot, it's now gone larger and is available statewide. And so how can people learn about this program or um, maybe participate in it to try and maybe boost those numbers of adoption? So if you're interested in learning more, go to agneighbors.com, put in a passcode, which is N-O-W-M-D for Naval Orange Worm Mating Disruption. And if you're a grower or a PCA, you pick the field where you're, you're growing or you're the PCA and say whether or not you're using mating disruption on that field. And then that information's put into the system. You'll see right away on the map that that parcel has got dash line as an expression of interest. Other growers that are in the area can see that. If, if they know who you are, they can reach out. Otherwise, once we close tool use off, we will work on connecting growers within about a half mile radius of each other and really work to create these neighborhood management areas where growers are working together to do mating disruption. And we'll also set up meetings with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which right now is the only agency that has an incentive or grant program to help growers do integrated pest management for naval orangeworm. And part of that grant can help fund the use of mating disruption. And the idea of this is to get your neighbors together because, like you said, it's shown to be more successful at a larger scale. So what what size parcels are we looking at here to put together and what kind of percentages of improvement are, are you looking at in terms of being effective or, or having this mating disruption work? Sure. When the original research was done by Cooperative Extension, it showed as much as a 50% reduction in damage 
in parcels that are 40 acres or more. And as much as a 78% reduction in damage in parcels that are 100 acres or more. So we know that this is more effective at scale. We're looking to connect smaller growers, whether it's a bunch of 5 or 10 or 20 acre blocks that as a contiguous area are going to cover 40 acres or more. And then that's really how we're going to make a difference for, for those growers is by building those connections and doing mating disruption hopefully you'll you will also see damage reduced and uh side benefit is you may be able to skip a spray because you've also reduced the the standing population of navel orange worm in your area and now uh, getting back to part of nrcs's participation in this and the incentives offered there um, that seems to be has traditionally been maybe a bit of a hang-up in terms of adoption is just the cost of this, but that's where NRCS is trying to help offset some of that to uh, kind of maybe get this practice more widespread? That's right. They have had this 595 practice standard for some time, but I think how it worked in practice was confusing. And so now we've worked with NRCS and Cooperative Extension has an integrated pest management program for navel orange worm. So they have adopted that as their own. And so now as long as a grower is following these essential steps, orchard sanitation, timely harvest, sprays, monitoring, and mating disruption, they can get paid uh, through this program. And this both the Ag Neighbors project that we're talking about, but also NRCS, These are available for all crops, not only almonds, that that have navel orange worm as a pest, so also walnuts and pistachios. That was another thing that was um, interesting about this, and and, uh, I've talked to a couple of the pistachio people about this program as well, is the idea that this is more than just an almond effort. This is more than just a pistachio effort. This is everyone kind of coming together because this is a pest that is uh, impacting multiple crops. So not just almond growers are eligible for this. That's correct. No, the this online tool, agneighbors.com, passcode N-O-W-M-D, is available for almond, walnut, or pistachio growers or PCAs. And we know that this is a pest that moves across these different crops. We know that when one crop is harvested, it can move to the the neighboring crop of a different type. So this is something that really lends itself to what uh, has been called area-wide management, but this is not a mandatory program as might be associated with that. So that's why we're calling it neighborhood management. And uh, just lastly here, there was a um, an April timeline for this in terms of um, either applying or, or looking for information. What's kind of the timeline here for this program? So we're asking growers and PCAs to go to Ag Neighbors, fill it out, and we're going to close tool use probably sometime in April because we need to analyze the results and pick a second site where we're going to do focused outreach. So we have worked in West Modesto and we've learned a lot and really appreciate the growers and PCAs that have come out and helped us understand how an online tool like this can help growers find each other and get connected. And now, based on tool use, we'll see where there are other areas of significant grower interest. And that's where we're going to do a second pilot area to go out and again work with growers and PCAs and learn how can we set up these voluntary neighborhood management areas and work together 
to manage this pest that we know uh, we all share, unfortunately. You're listening to Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Danielle Leo. We'll be right back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Farm Employers Labor Service Compliance Posters could save you thousands of dollars. Did you know that California lawmakers can be fined as much as $13,000 in government penalties if they don't have all the required employee and farm labor information posted for their workers? Avoid costly penalties and give yourself peace of mind knowing you are in full compliance with Fells Posters. At only $175, this full set of laminated weatherproof posters eliminates the risk. Order yours at FELS.net. You've been listening to the Agnet News Hour by Agnet West. I'm your host, Daniel Leal. Welcome back. We've got more of the day's agriculture news right now. $165,000 in startup funds available through the Ag Innovation Challenge. The American Farm Bureau Federation's Ag Innovation Challenge is looking for entrepreneurs and innovators for its 2024 edition of the contest. This will be the 10th year Farm Bureau and Farm Credit are partnering up for the competition. Chase Heineman, Director of Industry Relations at AFBF, talks about what makes a business a good fit for this event. Any startup that is agriculture focused, that is seeking to help farmers and ranchers meet the challenges that they face every day, trying to develop solutions, those are the types of businesses that we're looking for. Those businesses that are thinking creatively in their product and in their service, but also their business model. To be eligible, applicants must be members of Farm Bureau through their local chapters. Applications are open through May 12th, and the 10 semifinalist teams will be announced on September 12th. Each of these semifinalist teams will be awarded $10,000, as well as a chance to compete to advance for the final round, where four teams will receive an additional $5,000 each. The final four teams will compete to win either the Farm Bureau Ag Innovation Challenge winner for $50,000, the runner-up for $20,000, and People's Choice for an additional $5,000. If you'd like to find out more information, you can visit fb.org backslash challenge. The National Farmers Union has announced the featured speakers and events for their 121st anniversary convention in San Francisco. Attendees will hear from policymakers and educators on topics ranging from fair and competitive markets to engaging the next generation, biofuels, and more. The anniversary convention will be taking place March 5th through the 7th at the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack has been invited to speak at the event, and other confirmed speakers include Vice President of UC A&R Glenda Humiston, as well as CDFA Secretary Karen Ross. Attendees will have the opportunity to network with fellow Farmers Union members from across the country and Farmers Union leadership. There will also be debate and adoption of NFU's 2023 grassroots policy. More information about the event is available at nfu.org convention. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Farm producers received almost 10% less price-wise for their commodities in total in January, according to the Agriculture Department's latest Agricultural Prices Report. The 9.7% month-over-month decline in prices received for all producers was the same number indicated for prices within the livestock index. The largest decrease was what poultry and egg growers received price-wise, now 22% from the previous month. Dairy producers also noted a 6.5% price decline for their commodities. The crop production index was down 8.3% in January. 
The main culprit was prices received by vegetable and melon producers, down 22% month over month. That more than offset increased prices received by growers of feed grains, oil seeds, and fruits and tree nuts. Meanwhile, January's prices paid index for inputs and services rose 0.9% from the previous month. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Senate lawmakers earlier this week reintroduced the Dairy Pride Act of 2023. The bill is titled the Defending Against Imitation and Replacements of Yogurt, Milk, and Cheese to Promote Regular Intake of Dairy Every Day Act. The legislation would require non-dairy products made from nuts, seeds, plants, and algae to no longer be mislabeled with dairy terms such as milk, yogurt, or cheese. The reintroduction follows last week's Food and Drug Administration's proposal allowing nut, oat, soy, and other non-dairy products to use the name milk. Senate Democrat Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin says, quote, the Biden administration's guidance that allows non-dairy products to use dairy names is just wrong. The current FDA regulations define dairy products as being from dairy animals. However, last week, the FDA released draft guidance allowing plant-based products to continue to use dairy terms despite not containing dairy nor having the nutritional value of dairy products. NAFB contributed to that report. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Danielle Leal, Brian German, and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.